Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. How much whiteness? Welcome to So Many White Guys from WNYC Studios. I'm your host, Phoebe Robinson, and sitting right over there is my sidekick and platonic life partner. I'm talking about Joanna Solitaroff. Hey, Phoebs. Thanks for the always so kind introduction. You're welcome. It's always just such a sweet, warm welcome from you. You know what, Joni Mitch? I love you. You're my PLP, baby. Oh, I love you. What's a PLP? Platonic life partner. Oh, my God. PLP, yeah, you know me. (laughs) (laughs) That was so cute. I wish you were a rapper. Yeah. I'd be like, hey, guys, put a smile on your face. Get out of the rat race. It's Tuesday. Hey. Can we put, like, a trap beat under that in post? (laughs) Totally. And can I hear you do a rap? Okay. I think my first single will be called YQY. Yes, it would. Natch. Um. Um. Uh. Yo. I'm from Cleveland. Uh. Yo. They call it Believeland. Uh. Chilling with my homie, LeBron James. He's battling that fame. But he okay. He all right. He know who his real fans are at night. <laughs> I like how you have that puff daddy drop too. You're like, uh, uh, uh. That was like not horrific. Yeah, Believe Land is good. Thank you. That's good. Done. Bam. Cut and print. Send that over to Beyonce. She could do some vocals and be like, uh, and then it's a hit baby on title. Totally. <laughs> Look who's being trife. Word. <laughs> Did you know that a 33-year-old woman is capable of rapping that badly? Because she is. What's your rap name? My rap name? Should it be Joni Mitch? Joni Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> what if it was Joni Bitch? Oh! Because oh! you're edgy. Yeah, totally. Okay, we gotta come up with a, like a background. Because, like, you know, like, Jay-Z and Biggie, they, like, sold drugs. And they turned their lives around. But you're not convincing as a former drug dealer. So... What's your backstory as a rapper? Well, I grew up in Linden Hills, southwest Minneapolis. (laughs) Okay, we need some sort of struggle. Did you used to have bad acne? Um, I worked at a toy store for three years. Okay, okay. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. I I did gift wrap. Ooh, okay, okay. What else? I'm half Jewish. Ooh, yeah, I like that. Half Jewish in the Midwest. Oof, struggles, baby. Struggles. I didn't learn how to ride a bike until I was seven. What? (laughs) This would literally make the worst behind the music episode (laughs) of all time. (laughs) My, like, sweet, supportive parents are like, well, we just really love her. We honor her pursuits in life. Behind the Music. All right. You know why we're procrastinating, Joni? Do you know why? I know. Should I say it? Yeah, I can't. Guys, this is it. This is the final episode of season two. 
the finale. Finito. No mas. Nada after this. Today, we have our token white guy babies, and it is the dream of all dreams. The most delightful of delightfuls. I'm talking about Chris Hayes, one of the stars of MSNBC, baby. He was so great. I fell in love a little bit. Yeah. And it's just like his answers were so profound and woke and smart. And it really like made me think it made me feel a little more hopeful about this country because right now it's a little kind of scary. But I think people like him and others in the media are really trying to help us and protect us and make sure that we're staying on the path of like truth, which is great. But you know what? This has been quite a journey. I mean, we talked about it all. We talked about my insomnia, us dating, TV jingles, our boobs. Like, I just don't even know what to say anymore. I'm going to miss you, Pete. Can I tell you something that's funny about your interview with Chris Hayes? Yes. You would think that, like, coming from where he's coming from, Mm -hmm. you know, like, white man news guy and coming from where you're coming from, like, just, like, hilarious funny lady, you'd think maybe you don't have that much in common. You didn't say black. A hilarious black funny lady. I don't know if listeners know this, but Phoebe's black. <laughs> Phoebe, we should have let them know earlier in the season. Surprise! Surprise! Um, you would think that maybe you guys don't have so much in common, but it turns out you do. Which makes me think mm-hmm. maybe anybody could have a lot in common. I think I know what you're going for here. I think maybe it's time for us to reach across the aisle. (gasps) Our last one of the season, babies. Let's do it. Across the aisle. Across the aisle. Do you just want to grab a drink after work? Gosh, what the what's this sisterhood of traveling pants? Oh yeah. Yeah. We always share pants. Yeah. Even though I'm like significantly taller than you. Yeah. Yeah. It it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny when you wear mine, it's funny when I wear yours. Yeah, it's great. Just goofs and giggles. Goofs and giggles and gags. Yeah. And uh as you guys know, we have one of my all time favorite segments on this show. It is where Alana and I reach across that nasty-ass aisle that's keeping everyone apart, Mm. and we go, hey, you may be left, you may be right, doesn't matter, because there are some things that are just universal that we all love. And if we could focus on that and then branch out and talk about other issues, that's right. I think we'd be better. And this week, we are looking at generic ibuprofen. Yes, 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 yes. It's all the same. It's the same as Advil. Who needs it? Who needs that candy coating of Advil? I don't want to enjoy my medicine like it's candy. I want to swallow a bright orange, Mm -hmm. chalky, neon pill and just forget about why it's that color. Yeah. This bottle has 7,000 pills in it (laughs) and it was $11. Yeah. And I'm not better than generic ibuprofen. Yeah. And here's the thing. When you're having period cramps, your cramps don't know. They don't go, oh, this isn't my at all. No, you pop two to three tiny neon hockey pucks, generic ibuprofen, and you're feeling better in maybe half hour. Yeah, the cramps are powerless. It's like medicine is medicine, dude. That's it. Aspirin, Tylenol, Aleve, what is any of it? I just want generic ibuprofen, Mm -hmm. and I want to try calling it ibuprofen and see what anybody (laughs) says. 
I want to try ibuprofen and yeah. see what people say. But generic ibuprofen is uh, a lifesaver, a pain saver, an anti-inflammatory flame saver. So if you could just remember next time you're in the cafeteria and you're with a coworker and you're beefing about something, just remember we all like knockoff medicine. Be like, damn, I have a headache. I might take this generic ibuprofen and I swear to God, it's going to release tension. Don't take it if you don't need it, but it's going to release social tension just to bring it up. Yeah. So just take just take that with you on your journeys with the rest of your life. I don't know. Just just do it, guys. Love you. Love you, mean it. YQI. ibuprofen upsets your stomach but that doesn't stop me from taking at least 12 a day <laughs> i think 12 a day might be too much i am very stressed <laughs> yeah you know what everyone needs medicine to feel better what else can you take for headaches cramps depression arguments with your family <laughs> traffic uh tequila tequila <laughs> Touche. <laughs> my family really only gives me a headache when I have to like explain electronics to my mom. And I'm like, it's literally the worst moment of my life. And I'm like, this is when I'm going to be like at 50. Like I'm literally like not going to be able to understand things. I know. My dad called me on my birthday and was like, Joanna, I, I need some help figuring out how to, how to use Uber. My dad's literally 80 and his iPhone is like the second model. It's a square. It's like his iPhone is like basically the shape of a square. It's like this little brick and there's no way it's compatible with Uber. I'm like, oh, Joanna, I I need to get this Uber working because I have to make it to one of my doctor's appointments. And I was like, yeah, I don't really think you should use Uber. I don't know if it's right for you. And then I heard my mom in the background go, Bob, birthday? To, like, remind my dad that it's my birthday. He's like, oh, well, anyway, uh, so this Uber. Zero uh, If I go fucks. 22 miles, what's going to be less expensive, an Uber or a taxi? Also, this is in Minneapolis, so I have, like, no idea what those market rates are. And I'm like, I want to help you, but I can't. I also love that at, like, 80, he's like, your birthday, okay, great information but this is not going to help with my problem right now i love it i've had 80 of them yeah over it fucking deal how many times have i been in an uber none (laughs) priorities so did he get his uber stitch figured out my mom's taking him to the doctor (laughs) (laughs) that's the right call yeah yeah you know what can i do this toss this time joanna yeah toss it guys we got to do some mid-roll. Look at that. I pay attention when you say things to me, Joanna. But what if I don't want to go to mid-roll? <gasps> the tables have turned. Ooh. Cute. Thanks. And we're back from the break. Ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh. Feeds, you excited? Yes. It's time for a token white guy interview. Oh, my God. 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 You guys, I am so excited. Chris Hayes is one of the wokest white guys in the land. He is a little slice of heaven that I wish I could have every day with a side of turkey sausage. Is that weird? Do you want me? You know what? I'm going to. Can you dictate that? I'll pass that along to his assistant. Okay. 
Chris Hayes is one of the wokest white guys in the land, uh-huh. period. He's a little slice of heaven that I would like to have every day alongside some turkey sausage. Okay, cool. Exclamation point. And I'm going to make the subject line turkey sausage exclamation <laughs> point when I send it to his assistant. <laughs> he needs to know. He does need to know. It's important. Yeah. But for real, for real, for real, Chris Hayes is a totally woke Bay. I mean, he covers issues like poverty, the criminal justice system, and now he has a new book out called A Colony in a Nation, which is amazing, and it's about the racial inequality in America. It's riveting. You're really going to love it, and I think you're going to learn some stuff, too. But besides the book, he's also won an Emmy for his show, All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. He's got soups, cute glasses, and he's a fan of Tito Queens and moi. I mean, come Un. I trust him, and you should too. And I cannot wait to hold his white feet to the fire. LOL. Through the way, through the limit. Through, oh, what's the chance Maybe. to be with you? Maybe. I gladly risk Maybe. it all. Maybe. Should we start the interview? Sure. Great. Chris, welcome to So Many White Guys. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being the token white guy for this season. It's it's my great joy. This is very exciting. And this is our first time meeting. Yeah, it is. But I feel like I know you. uh, You know a lot. (laughs) You know so much about me that my parents don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was was telling her that I came to the show. You did. Your birthday show. and you didn't like hang out. I would have loved to have met you. Well, then. we came to the uh, came to the birthday show. I yeah. came late um, because I had my show, so I mm-hmm. came and my wife was there. Yeah, my wife was like the biggest fan. Uh, She's hey like an enormous fan, and she turned me on to both shows. And uh, so I came late, and I didn't get the whole setup for like dad bod stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but what was amazing about the cake? There was a dad bod cake for yeah. those who are listening. What was amazing about the cake is that the second the cake came out, without me having the predicate of dad bod jokes, I was like, oh, it's a dad bod cake. <laughs> Like, I seriously, I turned to Kate, and I was like, oh, that's a dad bod cake. That's awesome. I'm so predictable and transparent at this point. Well, also, it's a, uh, the, the cake maker oh, nailed it. I mean, I mean, you couldn't, it was the quintessence of dad bod. It's perfect. The, like, inappropriate bulge. <laughs> that was also particularly excellent. <laughs> the beer can. I was like, yeah, this is my future, dude. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so let's let's get into it. You're, you're a guest on this show. I'm a huge, huge fan of yours. I I really, really admire all the work that you do. And, like, you are only, what, 38? Yep. Which is, you're so young to be so accomplished. Like, no, but don't make, don't shake your head. (laughs) Accept the compliment. Okay. You are. You've really done a lot. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, do you ever in your career... Do you feel like people, because of your age, have kind of maybe underestimated you or, like, not taking you seriously, especially when you transition from being a pure, like, print journalist to television? Yeah, I think, um, yes. I mean, the short answer to that is yes. I think Mm -hmm. part of that has to do that I look pretty young. Mm -hmm. I've always looked kind of young. And I think even now I look probably younger than I am a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I What if I was like, no, you don't? (laughs) You'd be like, (laughs) just negged you real hard. Old and cracked. (laughs) All I care about, like literally the only thing I care about in everything that I do on television is whether I look fat or not. (laughs) 
And that's you, you're laughing like that's a good joke. It, ask my staff really? or my wife. Literally, like we'll do like I'll we'll spend like thousands of hours like talking to people in West Virginia about their struggles. And I'm just be like, oh, that shot is just. I, did you have to have the camera so low? I look so fat in that shot. I'm so glad you brought this up because <laughs> I shot I Love Dick, which is like my first TV show that mm-hmm. I was working on for Amazon, and I because everyone is so thin in Hollywood and so in shape and like. I'm not thin. Like I felt, I felt no, but I felt he, I felt huge North, around oh, yes. them. Oh yeah, and it's real. It's a mind fuck because you're like, I thought I liked myself, but then around other people, you're like, am I a, a garbage monster? That, it was really that is totally true. Yeah. A. B. The camera does add weight. Like so you, much. like when you meet people, that's part of the reason that's so crazy in L. A. Where you meet, if you meet an actress in L. A. Who you've yeah. seen from television, and on television she looks like thin. Yeah. In real life, she's like tiny beyond what you can imagine yeah because that's what the camera does and the other thing is yeah when you're around people i remember when we we would go like when a big story happens like when the the horrible you know murder in san bernardino happened yeah we were out there and like you know it was there was one hotel that everyone's staying in because san bernardino and like it's right near the thing and it's all these tv people yeah it's a similar thing where it's like you're in the lobby and like you can see it's like all these people are on tv professionally and then there's me Like, that guy must have started in print. He must be he must be smart because stop I, it. So but I do want to like seriously want to talk about this because I do think I, you know, I'm always kind of flipping that like, oh, guys and especially like white guys, they can look however they want to look on TV and it's fine. They can have careers. But like, have you ever had. And you're a journalist, so, like, this is, like, about the news and not about appearances, but does that still inform the way that you work sometimes? It does? I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways that being on television is deeply psychologically destructive Mm. um, because it's just unnatural, right? It's like we we have um, psyches that evolved over time to have kinship relationships, which are symmetrical relationships that are – I know you and you know me. Yeah. Right? That's where our psyches, our emotional life developed Mm -hmm. in the context of I know you, you know me. TV inverts all that. People know you, but you don't know them. Right. And we don't have the psychological faculties naturally to deal with that. So there's a lot of ways that that is weird. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Yeah. But particularly one of them is thinking of yourself and the way you look because Mm. it is true that in a weird way, being on TV has given me a glimpse into what it would be like, I think, particularly for women, mm-hmm. particularly for women in the public eye, mm-hmm. but even not in the public eye, of just being in public space and being aware of how you look, how people think you look, and looking at you, mm. which was not something I ever really thought about or experienced before TV. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, right. I'm much more aware of how I look, how people perceive how I look, yeah. and all of that. And it's a it's – a, um, it's a burden. Yeah. <laughs> it's a psychological – it's a thing you carry around yeah. that I didn't carry around before. It yeah. was a privilege not to carry around and now you do. I mean yeah. because you it's, it's sort of inescapable. And so do you feel like thinking about this and, and experiencing this, like you kind of relate to your wife or just women in general yeah, a little bit differently absolutely. than you did before? Yeah, I think about – it has given me a, a tiny sliver of insight into mm-hmm. the constant psychological freight of – being looked at, yeah. how being aware of your appearance and how people perceive it in a way that I don't think I had access to before. Ooh, damn. 
That's awesome. I'm glad that you can experience that because <laughs> not a lot of people, it's hard when you don't experience something. Like I'm always trying to educate myself about things like trans issues. Like I feel like for me, I'm like, well, I can't really understand that, right. but I'm really trying to learn. So I, I'm always appreciative when people yeah, are trying you get, to, you know what I mean? You get a glimpse into what, you know, you, you walk through the world as yourself. Mm-hmm. So you get these rare instances to sort of experience the world in these different ways. Yeah. And the other thing, the other thing about television, particularly television news, is right. There's this amorphous concept of gravitas, like who mm-hmm. has gravitas, mm-hmm. and a lot of what gravitas is is that you're just used to seeing someone. Like television mm. is television, really, particularly television news functions through familiarity and sort of trust and authority is earned over time. And so when I see Scott Pelley or for years Tom Brokaw, it was like, and Tom Brokaw, I think, is an incredible. Journalist, but also I saw Tom Brokaw and I was like, that's Tom Brokaw because yeah. every night Tom Brokaw was on my house. Yeah. If I was there the first day Tom Brokaw hosted, I wouldn't be like, that is the voice of the evening <laughs> news. It was right. the voice of the evening news because over time it became that. So I think part of what has to happen in any relationship you create with an audience and particularly in a news perspective is you just create over the course of time. It's like – cooking a turkey like mm-hmm. you cannot rush it yeah and so it's what four years you've been doing the show yeah we're coming up on four yeah. yeah and one of the things i love about your show is you have a diversity quota i want to read this you said about that um so you have it on your show where you keep a chart of guests to make sure you're keeping it pretty diverse and you were quoted as saying a general rule is that if there are four people sitting at a table only two of them can be white men often it would be less than that um don't you think two is too many just kidding well uh, <laughs> i mean first of all the answer is probably yes to that but no that was so that was yeah. that and was it's great that you do that that was true you know that was that was from when i was hosting up which was round yeah. table right where the diversity was very apparent right because mm-hmm. you have four people at the table it's like and in primetime it's even harder to keep up to that cuz you're booking that day right and also one of the things i've noticed and this is a, a sort of deeper issue is the show gets less diverse the more newsmakers we're booking because mm. Congress, for instance, is overwhelmingly white men. Right. So if we're in the middle of a news cycle and it's like, I want to talk to a senator, I want to talk to a congressman, it's like, before you know it, the yeah. diversity, you start to notice like, whoa, 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 we got all white men on the show tonight. What happened? It's like, well, we booked a senator and three congressmen. Yeah. And so you you start to see how – you can – if you're not vigilant about it, you mm-hmm. start to reflect the lack of diversity in centers of power yeah. by reporting on those centers of power because you want to talk to the principals. Mm-hmm. And so you end up in this situation where you're then kind of re- reinforcing it. Yeah. So cat's out of the bag. Trump is president. Yes. And – I think that has just kind of rippled throughout the country, especially through the media. I have been fatigued personally, um, just in terms of like reporting on Trump's tweets, which I think are all distractions from what he's really doing. So I'm like, if we just stop reporting on that, I think that would make me feel better. But you're in the news and you have to you, you do your show every night. And. How are you feeling? <laughs> like, honestly, like to report. Are you okay? <laughs> but I think this is a very kind of, this is the most news that's ever been. Absolutely. And so I'm wondering, like, how is there a way to to rise above the noise of it all yep. to actually kind of make sense and, you know, express the narrative that's going on currently? You know, the, the big issue is that, yeah, so there's there's the idea of, like, it's so constant and mm-hmm. you can sort of lose the forest for the trees. Yeah. Um, it's also like I find it both exhausting and invigorating at the same time. Like I feel really 
I feel this sort of sense of kind of frenetic adrenaline, like this work matters and it's urgent, but also like I'm losing my mind a little bit. Like I'm in a vortex of like Twitter. Like if I like close my eyes sometimes, I start to like see my Twitter screen, you know, like the ghost image of it yeah, because it's like burning into my retina Mm -hmm. in a way I don't think is healthy. (laughs) So I think that there's – I think it's like context and and through lines are really hard. Mm -hmm. Not chasing the shiny object is really hard. Yeah. I do think that there's a little bit of a learning curve for everyone. I do think like Rachel Maddow has a a line about sort of cover what they do, not what they say, which Mm -hmm. I think is also a kind of good rule. So that's – we're trying to stay – on the stuff that matters. To me, that's that's what's been so interesting about the healthcare fight because it's yeah. so concrete. It's, you know, he could tweet whatever he wants and right. all this stuff, but like people are, will or will not lose health insurance. They will or will not uh, be thrown off Medicaid. They will or will not see their premiums go up. That's just real life. Yeah. Anytime you're reporting on that stuff, it feels like you're more, you're the most grounded. And as you move away from that towards like what he tweeted, you start to feel like you're less and less tethered. Yeah. So when you go into doing your show, because, you know, we always have this idea that there's two kinds of, like, news. There's, like, the very, like, objective, like, old school, like, Walter Cronkite sort of thing. There's very kind of, like, personal, like, influence into how they present the news. And so how would you describe your style? And, like, what do you think, like, do you think there are good and bad things about each in the way that the news is being presented now? So that's, uh, to to answer the second question first, Mm -hmm. you know, the way I always think about news is as an ecosystem, right? So, so a healthy ecosystem has, you know, it has uh, fauna and it has predators and all these things sort of are operating among and within each other. And, and so a healthy news ecosystem has all sorts of different kinds of animals and creatures in it, right? So it has objective news. Um, It has the AP wire services that do incredible work. Mm -hmm. And then it has um, the editorial pages and commentary and it has investigative pieces. And so, you know, what you don't want out of news is like a monoculture. You don't want just everything to be the same. In terms of where I fit in, the, the sort of Walter Cronkite objective news model and the kind of pure opinion, I, I, I feel like we're sort of in the middle, mm-hmm. right? Like we do the news. This is what happened today. But it's unapologetically from my perspective, mm-hmm. which is also transparently communicated to the audience. Like I'm not swindling anyone. Yeah. There's no bait and switch. The Republicans that come on my show, it's not like, whoa, wait a second. Right. You t- No, they know. And like yeah. that's cool. Like that's the way actual democratic dialogue happens. You know, the the thing to me that's the most important is you don't lie to or trick your audience. Mm-hmm. So if you're up front with them about what you're doing and where you're coming from, then that's all good. Yeah. You know, like that that's fine. Um, that's that's sort of our approach to it. Yeah. And so, you know, in terms of the whole like alternative facts and fake news and this sort of culture that's brewing of suppressing news and, and suppressing things – that aren't in line with how someone wants to view themselves. Like how, like how are you responding? You and your staff responding to that sort of energy that's coming yeah. out. It's uh, it's really hard. I mean, mm-hmm. here's here's the <laughs> my the motto that I've been telling my staff is: we should all act as if reality, truth, matter. Even if it ends up they don't. Yeah. Because <laughs> if they don't, then I don't know what to do. Yeah. Like if it turns out that it just doesn't matter, that we've entered this kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're just floating out through this sort of vastness of a nihilistic universe that's mm-hmm. uncaring towards us and, and all that matters is who has power and force. Yeah. 
then I don't know how to do my job. So I'm going to do my job as if it were the case mm-hmm. that ultimately it matters what's true and what's not, what's real and what's not, what's fact-checked and what's not, what's credible and what's not, and and just do that as if it matters and hope that it turns out that it does. Yeah. And then if it doesn't, I don't know, I guess I'll like – Go learn to farm or something. Or I don't, but but, yeah. but that's that's our approach. And mm-hmm. I am completely – it's not clear to me that it does matter. Let me be clear. Yeah. Like the cynics on this and the nihilists might be right. It may be the case that this is a preposterous undertaking mm. to care about these things. But I'm just going to go ahead and do my work as if it does. That's a golf clap for me. Okay, so I want to move on to your book that's coming out soon. It's called A Colony in a Nation. So can you tell us a little bit about this book before we, like, get into a conversation? Yeah, so, like, what inspired you to write it? So I – um, there's sort of two reasons I wrote. One, I did a mm-hmm. lot of reporting on um, policing and race and reactions to police shootings and mm-hmm. criminal justice um, – I was in Ferguson. I was in Baltimore. I was in both Charleston and North Charleston, um, covered uh, protests in New York Mm -hmm. over Eric Garner. And over the course of that, had a sort of set of ideas that were kind of forming in my head. And the other thing is I grew up in this city, in New York City. I grew up in the Bronx, sort of outer borough, middle working class kid. Mm -hmm. And I experienced the city through the peak crime years, the Giuliani years, the Dinkins years, and the years when – there were 2,300 murders in New York City. There are 350 last year. So yeah. that gives you a sense of the scale. So those two things came together as I started to write a book that really goes at the question, why did we – and really I mean we white people, mm-hmm. but also just we as voters. Why did we create the system we have? Why do we have the regime of policing we have? Why is it the case that we created a system in which one out of every four prisoners in the world is an American? Yeah. And part of it is the first person experience of the appeal of law and order, the yeah. seductive call of white fear that I saw firsthand play out in the city that we saw play out in the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. And part of it is about the structure of the system that we've created in which, as the book's title says, we have what I say is a colony and a nation. We have a, a part of the society in which policing and law function the way you would expect them to function in democratic nations and a part that feel occupied. Uh, fundamentally, in which yeah. the the sort of feedback and accountability of democracy f- seem totally severed. Yeah. And so I appreciate you writing a book like this. I think the more – like there are books like this and the 13th documentary, I think that's really very important for people to kind of actually take a look at the society that we're living in. What I'm curious about is I've noticed a lot of times that when a white person writes – a book about race, it tends to be more well-received sometimes mm, than when a person mm, of color mm. who is in that experience. Totally. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, when you were writing the book, did you that, that thought ever cross your mind? Are people going to, like, take this more as the truth because of who I am and what I look so like? So that's a, that's a really good question. It, the, when the idea of the book first came along, mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it because I wrote back, actually, to the editor who was pitching it. I said, I don't want to write and no one wants to read, like— White guy explains Black Lives Matter. Yeah, <laughs> As, I was just that like, should have been the name of yeah. the book. <laughs> no, that was the, that was the working title until a few days ago. Wait, sir, no, no. no. Okay, <laughs> I was like, oh my god, did you? My face was like, what the fuck? <laughs> White guy explains Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I'm just gonna put that in right in front and center yeah. Hudson News before you get on the airplane. No, oh, well, that looks interesting. Um, <laughs> No, the the, the uh, <laughs> right. So that's the I didn't want to write that book, and in mm-hmm. some ways, I think that 
part of the Part of the project of the book, Mm -hmm. right? Like I want everyone to read the book of white, black, Mm -hmm. Latino, Asian, uh, all races and ethnicities. Um, But the book is kind of written by a white person in some ways to white people Mm. (laughs) about how we think about this stuff. Yeah. Because that – I felt like that was the thing that I could bring that was fresh. Mm -hmm. Like I can't – I am not going to write – the best description of what it feels like to be under the thumb of uh, oppressive policing because that's not my experience. What I can write about is what it's like to be on the other side Mm -hmm. and see the police as, oh, yeah, they're – it's good to have cops around and they keep order and what are politicians doing when they're cultivating that sense in me, right? Like Mm -hmm. I can write about – I can write about that part of it in a way that I feel like hasn't been treated, Mm -hmm. right? We – the the – the focus rightly is about the sort of effects of the system and what this book is trying to do is like look at the causes of it from the perspective of people that built it. Yeah. And that was the thing that I felt like I could uniquely and freshly contribute um, in a way that made me feel like I wanted to write the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. In, in writing a book like this, I imagine like every day there must have been something new where you're like, oh, I didn't think about this or this was shocking. So like what was the most surprising thing that you learned in this book writing process? The most surprising thing to me was the research I did uh, about the the nation's founding, the revolution, mm-hmm. um, because I learned that in a lot of ways the revolution was fought about policing, uh, mm-hmm. that it was the British version of stop and frisk that – got the colonists riled up when the crown said we can impound and search any ship we want to at any time. And the colonists thought it was an unbelievable humiliation. Yeah. And it was tyranny. And Thomas Jefferson has a line in the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. It's in the Declaration of Independence, which is not a long document that I had never heard until I wrote this book, which is complaining about the king. He hath sent forth swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. That's Thomas Jefferson saying, fuck the police. Yeah. In 1776. Yeah. So, like, the point of the sphere of revolutionary conflict in this nation was a rebellion against the policing power of the crown. And that that blew my mind. Yeah. Like, the more I looked into that, the more I was like, That's oh incredible. my God. Like, right. There was a bunch of smugglers, including John Han- Hancock. Yeah. They were like engaging in all sorts of gray market stuff. The crown needed the money to pay their war debts and yeah. were like, no more of this. They cracked down. They started stop and frisk. Yeah. They launched their own version of the war on drugs, which is the war wow. on tea smugglers, and they got the revolution. Wow. That just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, you, you grew up in the Bronx. Yep. Um, and you talked about growing up uh, when, like, the height of crime. So, what did you make of New York and, like, that, and then, like, what kind of environment did you grow up in? I grew up in the Bronx in mm-hmm. two different neighborhoods. One was this uh, sort of working class. Mm-hmm. Um, it had been an Irish Catholic neighborhood, although it got more sort of immigrant over time. Um, and then in this neighborhood called Riverdale, which mm-hmm. is a sort of more affluent neighborhood, although we were in a this very small house my parents had bought from the estate of a deceased nun. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, it swooped right in there. That's uh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Yeah. You, okay. can, yeah, yeah. you can imagine the expansive manse <laughs> that a nun would have. That's yeah, precisely right. where I grew up. Um, the, uh, the city felt exhilarating and terrifying mm. in those years. And I would commute down to Manhattan uh, starting in seventh grade, seventh through twelfth. I went to this sort of combined junior high school, high school in, in the Upper East Side, which is right on the border of Harlem. And like we just got jacked all the time. Like, Wait, really? You got robbed all the time? All the time. All the time. Your hats got jacked. Your 
jacket got jacked, your backpack got jacked. But if you needed to run, you'd have to like pull the straps up. Yeah. So like I was talking to my friends the other day about like the prophylactically pulling the straps up to prepare yourself to run away from getting jacked. Wow. Because you would just be like, oh. Oh, oh, this is about to go down. Like, <laughs> like straps up so that my, my Jansport is tight to my body so I can book it. So it was just like That's a constant. crazy. I never, it was never violent and it wasn't like in the grand scheme of things, it was, there was, it was fine. Yeah. You know, like I had some bus passes taken. Like, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> I know, but. But, it just, but yeah. the, the, the sense of lack of security, the mm-hmm. sense that like at any moment, it was pervasive and it was destabilizing. And. And there is a reason people don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. part of what this book is about is the fact that the appeal of law and order isn't some crazy thing. Like it's actually real. Yeah, like, it sounds great. People don't like to be not secure. Mm-hmm. And that's true uh, for black folks, white folks, and everyone else, right? Like mm-hmm. one of the things in the book I talk about is like the reaction in black neighborhoods during the peak crime years. But there was a lot of calls for more cops and there was a lot of like get mm-hmm. tough rhetoric because people like – this is outrageous. There's people dealing on the corner. There's gunshots. Like, so that appeal of order, that appeal for law and order and punishment, like that's a that's an intense thing, and it's particularly intense at times of high crime, mm-hmm. perceived disorder, perceived decline, mm-hmm. like the country I think feels right now. Yeah. Have you thought about what would be a better alternative or way for society yeah. to function outside of just like across the board. So so the last chapter of the book, um, it basically goes through the thought experiment and says, okay, what would it look like if people with very high levels of social capital, mm-hmm. if elite folks um, designed their own criminal justice system in which they would as likely be perpetrators as victims? Yeah. Right? So what if, what if you designed a system where you couldn't say, oh, yeah, we're going to throw the crack dealer in jail and I could be comfortable that that's not my brother? Mm-hmm. And the fact is such systems exist. They're called elite colleges and they have their own justice systems. And guess what? They're incredibly permissive. Yeah. They're incredibly forgiving. They have incredibly high levels of due process. And that's because in those environments, that punitive instinct is tempered by the fact that people are like, well, I don't want my kid to go to college and then be busted for weed possession and then get thrown in jail. Yeah. Right? So it turns out that like in certain environments – we can create a far more compassionate, empathetic, <laughs> forgiving vision of crime and punishment than the one that we have in our society. Yeah. And as I write in the book, that's not without its own problems too, right? Like the permissiveness around sexual assault on campus is its is its own part of that same kind of culture in some ways. Yeah. So there's no like simple answer. But what there is is there are ways to conceive of a society in which we were – much more the which voters thought about the costs of law and order mm-hmm. as much as the costs of disorder yeah right and because of the sort of the colony and the nation being these kind of separate spheres voters in the nation can vote to bring hell down on the colony without thinking it's going to be their own mothers or sisters or brothers who are going to be caught up in it yeah i think it also uh requires people to view humanity differently because there is this obsession with like there has to be justice and like you know once someone commits a crime they stop becoming human to a lot of people and become like this is a problem that we now have to solve you know that's exactly right like it's 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 essences as opposed to acts Mm -hmm. right what we want to prevent is crime it's not criminals yeah 
And those are human beings who commit acts. We want to stop them from committing those acts. We want to deter them from committing those acts. We want to hold them accountable and punish them from committing those acts and prevent them from committing them again. Yeah. As opposed to some set of bad people that are the criminals that we want to cordon off. Yeah. Right? Those are two different models of thinking about it. And the the, the idea of thinking about it in terms of acts is what you see on elite college campuses. Yeah. Oh, he made a mistake. Oh, he's a good kid. Yeah. Right? The way of thinking about it in terms of essences is the way we think about it in terms of, say, the west side of Baltimore or the south side of Chicago or other neighborhoods, right, where it's like those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the, part of the reason why people want to stay in that mindset is because then if it's if it's about, like, the crime and not the person, then you can easily be like, oh, well, I would never do that. Right. I'm not like that. That's a bad person. As opposed to, like, no, well, anyone is capable of doing anything. It's just like which how is a crazy right. thought, but it's I think scary. it's true. Yeah. Actually, I, it's funny. I don't think I used to think that, but I now, in a weird way, do think that. Yeah, I think the older I get, you know, the reason why we are the way that we are and where we are is because of how we were raised and the environments we were in, and you know, there were a series of like good things yep. that led us to this point. And then also not being under incredible states of pressure or stress. Exactly. You know, and you know, and and I was look, I was just in West Virginia. Um, where, you know, you watching opioids just ravage these communities and it's like, right, like there before the grace of God go I, mm-hmm. right? Like, and there's, and that's a real, people really feel that, particularly when you're talking about drugs, when you're talking about addiction, which was the case in in the New York in the crack years in the 90s, right? Yeah. I mean, the, that drug just like whew, burned through neighborhoods yeah. um, and the way that, that, that pain pills and, and heroin and fentanyl are now. And yeah, I think the older you get, the more you go away from this like, I had the younger view, too, of, like, that's not who I am. Yeah, and that we're all... Weak. Yes. (laughs) We're all weak. And that's scary to think about and to admit, but I think if we did think about that more, I think the structure of society would be drastically different. 100%. Yeah. 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 I just want us to, like... Agree and just Solved. be like we're Done. all we're all <laughs> we're all weak. It? What yeah. we've agreed on is we're all weak. Basically, the end of this podcast being like I could totally commit murder. Yeah, me too. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Think about it several times a day. I've planned a few. I've got a I've got a Google Doc. I feel like all my murders would be for super petty shit. Like, right? But that's actually what real. That's also what real murders are for. I, is for super petty shit. That's what's so upsetting. I like, know. that's actually true. You know what I mean? Like, that's what leads to murder in a lot of cases. Oh my gosh, Chris, we gotta stop this. I know. <laughs> Let together, let's do this. We're gonna change the world. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I kind of want to get like your thoughts on where you think the country is going and should go forward and how you think news and media can help facilitate that. I mean, I don't know. I, the country feels like it's balanced on a nice edge. And mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of different futures spanning out in front of it. Um, I think that – what has been hopeful is this sort of reawakening of civic engagement, reawakening of civil society, mm-hmm. increasingly a belief that like our institutions won't save us and political leaders won't save us. What saves us is us mm-hmm. and that the thing that powers any liberal democracy fundamentally is civil society. It's the relationships and institutions and norms of the people that keep a place going. Yeah. And I think there's been a rediscovery of that and a reinvigoration that I think is really inspiring. And I hope that that means 
that we have a kind of democratic rebirth in this country, that that the levels of engagement mean that we kind of create collectively as a body politic the antibodies to sort of fight off this sort of infection of cynicism and nihilism and relativism that we've seen, that nothing matters and it's all fake news and there's yeah. no such thing as facts and everything is who who's more powerful and what tribe you're in and whether that tribe can beat the other tribe. Um, I do feel hopeful. I think there's a lot of hopeful signs that we are in the midst of something, the very early part of some kind of reawakening. And I think that my hope is that that carries the day. I like that. Thanks. That makes me feel good. And so also because you're a parent, you have two kids. I do, yeah. And so are you also kind of like terrified about like the kind of world your kids are going to grow up in or not really? No. I am, but I. it's funny. That feels so remote in some ways that I always mm-hmm. just think about – I'm thinking about them now. Mm-hmm. I mean I do think – what I do think is weird is to have this person – in the person of the president of the United States who looms so large in everyone's imagination, including my kids, mm-hmm. and looms so sort of negatively large, like a person who says mean things, you know? Yeah. Like it's just – it's strange. It's surreal um, that, that that's, that's – there's this sort of vastly negative presence that sort of looms over. Um, and that has nothing to do with like what he's doing substantively or politics. It's just sort of the way that he's chosen to conduct himself in public life. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I think that's the more direct way that I think about it. Um, The future just seems so far. Like, literally, I'm just trying to get through the day. Yeah. Like, you know, make sure I get a little quality time with my kiddos in the morning and drop them off and then, like, focus on my show and put a good show on and then go to bed and repeat. Aw, that's so cute. Okay, well, we got to get out of here, but everyone, please pick up a copy of A Colony in a Nation. It is amazing. Chris, I'm a huge fan of yours. I am a huge fan of yours, and um, this was a big, this is big for me today. It's really big. Really? Oh, my gosh, I want to (laughs) cry. Thank you. God damn. Whew, you guys, Chris Hayes, for life. If Chris Hayes was a cult leader, I would join. Yeah. And if he was president, I'd be his first lady. Ooh. And if he needed a ride, he'd be my Miss Daisy. <laughs> I don't think that works. Uh, no, because then you're Morgan Freeman. That's cute. That's my dream. Yeah. Who doesn't want to be Morgan? He's the voice of God in like so many movies. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Didn't know it. Cute. Okay. Joni Mitch. Yes. I promised myself I wouldn't get emotional about our last episode of the seas. So you know what? Can we just get to the credits, please? <laughs> the So Many White Guys team includes Rachel Neal, Hey Girl, Janice Altaroff, Simuleta Boo, Jim Poyant, Let's Grab a Drink, Hun, Paula Schumann, Felicity Season 1. Isaac Jones, hey boo boo, Matt Boynton, hey sweet cheeks, and Joe Plord, my future uh, pregnancy scare. Whoa! Cool. Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. Log on to Twitter, search WYC Studios, click follow. Now enjoy some sweet ass photos of me and the 100% babe Asaurus Rex. 
Chris Hayes. Exciting new update. All the episodes of So Many White Guys are now available on Spotify. And don't forget, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dope Queen Phoebs. Bye, Q, bye. Oh, bye, Q, bye. I love that. <laughs> Okay, so we, we got to get out of here, but I want to get your thoughts on the cunch, a.k.a. country, moving mm-hmm. forward. That was so stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> the cunch. Um, your thoughts. My wife on- and I are always trying to cut off words the way you do, but we also, like, it doesn't quite work when yeah. we get it wrong. So I'm, I'm happy to see that you workshop stuff that also doesn't oh work like the cunch, I'm which I think we can all agree do, yeah. do not work. You don't like cunch? <laughs> 